most recent developments in the Chauvin case are a clear roadmap to where the case is going. The two issues will be, did Chauvin cause the death of Floyd and what was his intention? The key question that remains is, will Chauvin testify at the trial? You'll hear reasons why he should and why he shouldn't on The Dirt Show. The third day of the Chauvin trial made clear, I think, what the prosecution is going to be arguing to the jury in their closing argument and what the defense is probably going to be arguing to the jury in its closing argument. The defense case obviously isn't as clear because we don't know the critical, critical issue. Is Chauvin going to testify <clears throat> on his own behalf? That's the hardest question that a criminal defense lawyer ever faces. I had a friend who used to charge $100,000 to try a criminal case, and he would say 95000 of that is for the decision whether to put the client on the witness stand. 5000 is for the rest of the case. But the key is whether you put the defendant on the stand. I've gotten so many letters from prisoners who have said, oh, my God, it's all my lawyer's fault that I'm in prison. My lawyer didn't allow me to testify. Then I get letters from others saying, it's all my lawyer's fault. My lawyer had me testify, and that's what sunk me. You know, jurors can listen and watch videotapes and hear experts, but in the end, they want to look in the defendant's eyes. They want to see whether they like him, whether they approve of what he did, whether they believe him, whether they think he intended for the outcome death to be what it was. So there's a lot of pressure on the defense to put the defendant on the witness stand, which he has a constitutional right to do. But remember, when you put a defendant on the witness stand, you open him up to all kinds of cross-examination and evidence that wouldn't otherwise come in. Um, for example, in this case, there apparently is evidence of prior use of excessive force. Now, if he doesn't take the stand, they may be able to get that in into something that's called pattern evidence, if they can show it was a similar pattern. But that's always chancy for the prosecution. Uh, but if he does testify, they can put him, they can put on a lot of evidence going to his credibility, whether he's a truth-telling person. So it's going to be a very, very, very hard decision. It will depend in part on how strong the prosecution's case on causation is. And again, I can see, I can see the, the writing on the wall, uh, what's going to happen. You're going to see experts and hear experts on both sides. But both sets of experts, in the end, will have to admit the following. They're going to have to admit that but for the knee on the neck or the knee on the shoulder, however it comes out, but for the knee, George Floyd would still be walking around today with a heart condition, perhaps with a drug addiction, with high blood pressure, but he'd be alive today. So both sides, experts on both sides, will have to acknowledge that the knee on the neck or the knee on the shoulder is a but-for cause of the death. Without the knee on the neck, without Chauvin's actions, he would not be dead today. That's what we mean by a but-for cause. But all the experts will also have to acknowledge, this is a little bit more chancy, and it will really depend on what the autopsy results and other results show, but I think they'll have to acknowledge that if he were a perfectly healthy person, the knee on the neck, even for nine minutes, or the knee on the shoulder, 
would probably not have caused his death absent a high level of drugs in his body, absent his heart condition, absent his high blood pressure. In other words, the three factors that are his fault, the fault of George Floyd, not the fault necessarily, but attributable to him, the high blood pressure, the heart condition, and the excessive use of drugs and a large amount of drugs. But for those factors, he might also still be alive today, even with the knee on the neck. And the defense will argue, and argue quite persuasively in many respects, that, look, the knee on the neck has been used over and over again, not only in Minneapolis, but all over the world. Unfortunately, it's a tactic that is used by police, and we're aware of no other death, certainly not in Minneapolis, that resulted from that knee on the neck technique. And therefore, it couldn't be the knee on the neck alone that caused his death. If he had been a healthy person, not with drugs in his body, he'd still be alive today. Now, the prosecution will come back and say, yeah, there have been other cases of knee on the neck, but none for nine and a half minutes. Well, of course, we don't know the answer to that because there aren't videos of the other cases. We don't know how long the knee on the neck. We don't know if there's any other case in which there's been a knee on the neck. So in the end, the defense case will have to acknowledge that but for the knee on the neck, he'd be alive. But they will say that there is reasonable doubt about whether or not he'd still be alive but for the three conditions, the drugs, the heart, and the high blood pressure. So let's go to a hypothetical, which may actually not be a hypothetical. It may be true. Let's assume the jury has all the evidence. We hear all the evidence. We who are watching it. We hear the judge's instructions. We hear the arguments from counsel. And the jury sends the following note to the judge. Here's the note. Your Honor, we have come to two conclusions. We have concluded beyond a reasonable doubt that the knee on the neck was a cause, a cause of the death, that but for the knee on the neck, he'd still be alive. That's conclusion one. Conclusion two, we have also come to the conclusion, beyond a reasonable doubt, that but for his drug use, his high blood pressure, and his heart condition, he would probably still be alive today, even with the knee on the neck. In other words, the knee on the neck alone didn't kill him, and the drugs and the heart condition alone didn't kill him. There were two significant causal elements that brought about his death. Your Honor, please guide us. If we believe in both of those conclusions, do we vote guilty or do we vote innocent? Does though, do those conclusions mean that he did cause the death or that he didn't cause the death? In other words, throwing the issue back to the judge to tell them what causation means. Because all three statutes, second-degree murder, third-degree murder, second-degree manslaughter, all use the word causes the death. And so the jury must find beyond a reasonable doubt that element that he caused the death. I don't know what the judge will decide there. The law is not as clear as it could be. Um, the judge will probably instruct the jury as follows. It's up to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, 
to decide whether the actions of Chauvin, the knee on the neck, the knee on the shoulder, the nine and a half minutes, was a significant cause, was a substantial cause. He may use words like that. Um, he may use more legal mumbo jumbo. He may say, was a proximate cause or was the proximate cause, as if we know what proximate cause means. Um, it, in some respects, of course, this whole issue of causation is a scientific issue, is an issue of science. It, it doesn't matter what the defendant intended. It doesn't matter whether or not he was yelling, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. It's up to science to determine what caused the death. I think I've mentioned I've had a handful of cases in which I've won on causation theory. My client shot somebody in the head after somebody had shot him in the heart. We won. The court said you can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the second bullet caused his death. He may have already been dead during the first bullet. Klaus von Bülow case. Did Klaus inject his wife with insulin? Did that cause her coma? The defense introduced evidence that she was hypoglycemic and was using barbiturates. And we claimed successfully that that's what caused her coma. I had another case which my client was the medical examiner. And he was accused of injecting his wife with sexinocholine and causing her heart to stop. We were able to prove by scientific lab tests that no, she had died of an arrhythmia in her sleep. And that was the cause of death. So, and I've won other cases like that. Causation is a big, big deal in these kinds of murder and homicide cases. And it's going to be up to the judge. It's going to be up to the judge. His instruction will A determine the outcome of the case, likely, and B, will be a major issue on appeal. Because if he instructs wrongly, if he gives an instruction that's too favorable to the prosecution and the prosecution wins the case, there will be an appeal. And the appellate courts of Minnesota will have to decide what causation means in the context of a case like this. I've looked for some of the cases. They go both ways. They're ambivalent. They use language that could either help the defense or help the prosecution in this case. So when you watch the causation arguments come out and the causation science come out, because you're going to hear from scientists now, they don't know what he intended. They don't care what he intended. They're just looking at the biology, at the chemistry, the physics. They're looking at the science of it. And when they come to the conclusion that there were two independent causal elements to this death, namely the actions of Chauvin and the pre-existing conditions of uh, George Floyd, then the scientists are going to say, we've done all we can do here. We told you the science. You're going to have to decide the case. And then the question comes down to, is this a case of fact to be decided by the jury or is it a matter of law to be decided by the judge. The judge is going to try to make it a fact issue. He's going to try to put it in the hands of the jury. The jury may come back with questions, putting it in the hands of the judge. So stay tuned, because although this case appears to be crystal clear on the moral issues, and I've said that over and over again, I don't think there's any way you can justify the knee on the neck or the shoulder for nine and a half minutes uh, after he's been subdued and he's yelling, I can't breathe, mama, mama, mama. There's no way of justifying that. There's a special place in hell for the police officers who allowed this man to die under these circumstances. But that's not what the jury is supposed to decide. 
the jury is not the angel Gabriel deciding whether Chauvin goes to heaven or hell or somewhere in between. The jury has to decide whether or not the prosecution proved each element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Causation is a key element here. Will they decide that there was causation under the law of Minnesota? That's the question. The next question is intention. Scientists can't tell us anything about Chauvin's intention. That's going to depend on two things. The videos from which you might be able to infer intent, but more importantly, if the defendant testifies, his own testimony, what he says about his state of mind, how he explains it, how he justifies it, whether the jury believes him, whether the jury accepts his justification. Those are going to be the issues in this case. If I was still teaching criminal law at Harvard, I would have my students watching at least parts of this case because it is a very complex, very interesting, and very difficult case legally, particularly on the issue of causation. As I say, the judge may simplify it and may simply say as a matter of law, if Chauvin's actions were a contributing cause, a significant cause, a proximate cause, a cause, that's enough and you can convict beyond a reasonable doubt. If that's the instruction, the jury will almost certainly find that element of causation and probably convict of at least one of the charges, and then the case will go up on appeal. And because this is the George Floyd case, it's very likely an appellate court would go out of its way to try to affirm the conviction if there was a basis for doing so. Because appellate courts, unlike juries, um, know what's going on outside. Right now, the jury doesn't really know uh, the pressures that are existing outside the courtroom, uh, Sharpton and, and Crump and the lawyers for uh, the protesters and the protesters uh, are all implying, suggesting that the world is watching this case. This is a case where there might be a reaction if there's a verdict that doesn't satisfy the people outside the courtroom. Uh, Appellate judges read the newspapers, they follow the news, they follow the trial on television, probably, and uh, they may be influenced, may not. They're supposed to be above influence, they're supposed to be above any kind of pre-existing bias. So we don't know what an appellate court would do, but I have to tell you, I told O.J. Simpson when I was his lawyer that if he lost the trial uh, and I was going to be arguing the appeal, the appeal would be very, very uphill because the mood of the country was very much against O.J. Simpson. But he got acquitted. And so did the police officers in the first trial of Rodney King, even though there was a videotape. They were convicted in the second trial in the federal court in a different location, not Simi Valley, but a location that was more racially diverse. Here we have a racially diverse jury. And there's always a third alternative, third alternative that, you know, kissing your sister. Nobody likes it. Kissing your cousin. A hung jury, a jury that can't come to a conclusion, that splits. All you need is one juror. This is not a civil case. In civil cases and in some jurisdictions in criminal cases, you can have non-unanimous juries. Uh, my understanding constitutionally is that you should have to have a unanimous jury in a criminal case. The courts are... Uh, not doesn't do not support that position, but I think that's the right position. But you could have a hung jury in in this case, and that would be very unsatisfying, I think, both to the prosecution, to the public, probably not so unsatisfying 
to the defense because it would then increase the chances of a reasonable uh, plea bargain. And, you know, there's still a one in a hundred chance. I think it's one in a hundred, but I've seen cases like this where you get a plea bargain in the middle of the trial. If the case isn't going well, if the defendant takes the stand, then he's devastated on cross-examination. I've seen cases where you get uh, a plea bargain at the very, very end of the case, and the case is resolved by agreement rather than by a jury verdict. So we're a long way from a verdict in this case. Um, I think the prosecution's going too slow and too long. I think they have diminished the impact of the video by playing it over and over and over and over again. It becomes more clinical at this point than it does emotional. Um, also, the prosecution made a decision, I think a wise decision, to put on a lot of the evidence in their case that they know the defense will put on, and that helps the defense. The evidence of the person who took the $20 and said he looked like he may have been high, uh, the evidence that shows he may have been slurring his words, the evidence that shows that he didn't want to get into the police car and was fighting back, um, all of that evidence will be presented by the defense, and the prosecution is smart to front it, to put it in their case so it blunts it, it blunts the emotional impact. It doesn't come as a big surprise when the defense puts it on. It's not a Perry Mason moment because the Perry Mason moment has been blunted by the prosecution. So, look, I have spent my life uh, watching, reading, listening to criminal cases of this kind. I do a series on great cases. And I've probably read more trial transcripts than any living human being, uh, other than perhaps the publisher of my series of books. I've read hundreds of trial transcripts. And as an appellate lawyer, I've read uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of trial transcripts. I consider myself the lawyer who does the autopsy on failed criminal trials. I read the transcripts when the defense has lost in order to advise clients as to whether there are appellate issues, what the appellate issues are, and what the likelihood is that we can win on appeal. I have won more appeals in murder cases, have a higher percentage of winning murder cases than I think any uh, living lawyer in the United States today. I've lost very, very, very few of my murder cases and attempted murder cases. Um, and so I think I know of which I speak. That doesn't mean I'm in the minds of the jury. I can't get into the heads of the jury. I'm not a Minnesotan. Um, I don't know uh, what the cultural norms there are. I don't know how much they know about this case. And so it would be entirely speculative of me to predict the outcome. But I can tell you it's not going to be easy for the jury. They're going to hear complexity, nuance, calibration, matters of degree, and reasonable doubt. So stay tuned. Interested in your views uh, on the case, your views both on the moral issues, and I've heard from a number of you who seem to be supportive of Chauvin, something I can't find in my heart to do to be supportive of a Chauvin, and those of you who may not be supportive of Chauvin as a person, but understand that the legal principles go beyond uh, the issue of what you think of Chauvin or what you think of his conduct. So. Stay tuned. We won't be talking about the Chauvin case every day, but we'll be bringing you up to date uh, on developments as they occur. And we'll be hearing your views on The Dirt Show. Now to my favorite part of The Dirt Show, the wits, your calls, your comments. Let's go to the first call. Hi, Ellen. Uh, this is Keenan from Colorado. And frankly, 
I'm just disappointed. It seems like every time that you talk about something aside from the law of free speech, you're as informed as the average American. Your rant yesterday, which frankly was just ignorant, proves that your understanding of the Holocaust comes primarily from Hollywood, where in the course of two hours, you watch Jews don the patch and then be hauled off to death camps. You spoke yesterday as if the patch was a form of shipping label to be sent off to Auschwitz. The badges that they were forced to wear serve the same purpose that every badge serves, to identify the person wearing it. Nazis propagandized that Jews were dirty, unclean, less than human, and that was the whole point of the star. I really feel weird saying this, but I would encourage you to research the actual purpose of the Jewish star. The first Google result simply states the star was intended to humiliate Jews and to mark them out for segregation and discrimination. The vaccine passport is merely the inverse. It is a document that protects you from segregation and discrimination, but the system that it creates is designed to facilitate the same segregation, the same separation into first-class and second-class citizens, where you can segregate against the second-class citizens, deny them private and government services, humiliate them and dehumanize them, all of which is going on today for people who choose not to use the vaccine. You said yesterday that people who made this comparison were Holocaust deniers and stupid jerks. Honestly, your uninformed rant yesterday makes you the stupid jerk, in my opinion. You can disagree with the comparison, but labeling people Holocaust deniers is just a bridge too far. I hope you reconsider. Thank you. Well, with all due respect, that is an absurd argument and an insulting argument. We're not talking about making people wear identifying papers of any kind. We're giving people who have been vaccinated, who have chosen to be vaccinated, who've chosen to do the right thing, who have chosen to protect their family and their friends and themselves from a deadly disease, we're giving them a document that says you've been vaccinated so that we can make decisions about whether to interact with you. If you're a second-class citizen, it's because you've chosen to be a second-class citizen. The Jews didn't choose to be wearing yellow stars. They didn't make a decision. No Jew was given the choice, be vaccinated and you lose your yellow star. It is such an insulting, absurd, ahistorical, ignorant argument. The idea that you can make any comparison between a person who chooses not to be vaccinated, stupidly, foolishly, ignorantly chooses not to be vaccinated and not to prevent the spread of a disease, you compare that to some two-year-old who was born to a Jewish mother and therefore has a star and is led into the gas chambers, shame on you for even making that argument. But on The Der Show, you get to make whatever stupid, ridiculous, ignorant, bigoted, and biased arguments you want to make. This is not YouTube, so go ahead, continue to make your absurd arguments, and I will continue to answer them forcefully, directly, historically, and intelligently. Next call. Hello, Alan. My name is John. I'm from Nashville, New Hampshire. I'm a big fan of yours um, for a long time. I appreciate what you do. I just saw your podcast of uh, March 31st. I want to rebut you on two points. One, as far as COVID-19 and the vaccine goes, uh, you should know that it is not a vaccine, could not be called a vaccine in uh, times that we're not, emergency, we're not under an emergency order. It's experimental gene therapy using synthetic mRNA. The white papers released by Moderna and Pfizer say as much, including the notice that the experimental gene therapy via synthetic mRNA has shown no efficacy in providing any immunity or protection from any coronavirus. 
So you should be aware of that. You can look it up yourself. It's in their white papers. Two, I want to go um, what you said about the Holocaust denial. To equate vaccine passports for the star David armbands to Nazis forced on the Jews is not Holocaust denial, in my opinion. It is the exact opposite. Um, I'm a great studier of history, know a lot about the Nazis and what they did, as I'm sure you do as well. And I'm sure you know that it took the Nazis 10 years to get to the final solution. The Nazis took many small steps along the way to get there. Armbands were first on the Jews in the Reich long before they were first forced on the Jews in Poland and elsewhere. Armbands in the initial stages of the Nazi regime were akin to vaccine passports, as it was the government's way of branding who and who is not acceptable in the polite society and disallowing a segment of people from participating in society based on their identification papers. So for people to say that the star David armbands are akin to vaccine passports, no one's denying the Holocaust here. We're saying this is the first step by a radical government in controlling the population by branding one segment of society as unfit to participate in society. And that is exactly what the Nazis did in Germany. The Germans did not accept at first when the Nazis came to power, the persecutions of the Jews. It took many, many small steps over many long years to get there. And most Germans were astounded when they finally ended up at that point. Most Americans were astounded by the COVID reaction. We're astounded by this vaccine reaction. And we feel as though we're going down the same path. So please um, respond to my comments and I'd appreciate to hear them. I don't think you're going to be a fan of my show anymore after I give you my answer. Uh, the answer is that if you really think that people who are not going to take the vaccine are ultimately going to be put in gas chambers, I don't want you listening to my show. Uh, please turn it off. Go to another show. Um, uh, the idea that we would in any way take people who haven't been vaccinated and put them in death camps and subject them to the gas chamber or shootings or hangings it is so preposterous it doesn't deserve an answer. Uh, we have a right as a society to know who's been vaccinated and who hasn't been vaccinated. I have a right to know that when I decide who to interact with. And as far as your statement that it's not a vaccine, it's not vaccinated, obviously if you were on YouTube, you'd be taken down. And if I imposed any kind of censorship, I wouldn't allow that phone call to be made. It's wrong. It's false. This is a vaccine. It's highly effective. It, there are experimental elements. There are still experimental elements to the polio vaccine. We live in a world in which life is filled with experiments. But this is an experiment that's been working. It has saved lives. It will continue to save lives. Everyone in my family, all my loved ones are lining up to get uh, vaccinated. Uh, people who don't want to get vaccinated may or may not have a constitutional right not to be vaccinated. But you have no constitutional right to prevent me from having my vaccination certificate and showing it as I choose to, to get on airplanes and to get into uh, buildings. You know, we heard those arguments, similar arguments, right after 9-11 when we required uh, uh, uh passports, we call them driver's licenses, you call them passports, to get on airplanes and to get into buildings and to come to visit me at Harvard Law School. It was not the first step toward uh, tyranny. It was a step made essential by threats posed to our country from abroad and, and domestically. And the same thing is true even, even greater. Vaccines work. Take them, everybody. Take them. If you choose not to, you are in some respects uh, somebody who uh, doesn't deserve uh, all the privileges that the rest of us get. No, you're not coming to my house if you don't take the vaccine. No, you're not getting into a restaurant. 
that I go to if you don't take the vaccine. No, you're not getting on an airplane that I want to fly on if you don't take the vaccine. If you don't want to take the vaccine, stay in your home. Hide away. Uh, Don't infect me. If you want to infect yourself, okay. If you have young people in your family, you have no right to infect them either. But to to in any way analogize anti-vaxxers who made a choice to violate the rules and the law to a Jewish three-year-old or five-year-old or 85-year-old who has a Star of David put on them and then led to the death camps where they're put in, in, in gas chambers and murdered. Shame on you. Don't make that argument. I'm going to show you how open-minded I am. I'm going to keep keeping people making those arguments on my show because I want listeners and viewers to know how absurd people are out there who make that argument. I don't want that argument to be made in bars or under rocks. Make it openly. Make it on my show so I can respond in the marketplace of ideas. Don't expect a polite response, though. Don't expect a calm response when you compare people who have chosen not to get the vaccine to my relatives, to my grandfather's brothers, to my cousins who are led to their death in gas chambers. Don't make that comparison and expect me to be polite in my response. Shame on you. Hi, Mr. Dershowitz. Uh, My name is Colleen and I'm calling from California. I'm a fairly new listener I just listened to your podcast about the comparison with the Star of David and the passports, and I could hear the passion in your voice about the the horrific history that happened, you know, during the Holocaust. And and I can I, I can only imagine ever since I was a kid that has always I, I went to the Museum of Tolerance. I I read up on all of it because it's just so mind boggling to me. And what was always mind boggling to me is how we could let something go so far. And I think what the point that was is being missed is the segregation that comes with the passport. Uh, and even you said in yourself during this, during the segment that you would not let somebody in the house that has uh, not been vaccinated. Right. Well, that's almost the same as, and I'm not, I would never compare the, the horrific. I'm just talking about the segregation part because during that time there was people with the star of David and there was the, the Nazis and everybody wore a badge. So you knew who everybody was and it started the segregation and we're already on such a path of division in our, our, our wonderful nation that this is the last thing that we need to add to it because mm-hmm. there are a significant amount of people that are not afraid of this virus that are not, um, they're not wanting to be uh, an experiment with a, a newly trialed drug. And I just, you know, um, I, I am a huge fan and I just wanted to call in and I was, I, was, I actually paused the show just so I could say that. Well, I appreciate that. That's a very thoughtful call. I I agree with much of what you said, but here's where we disagree. I believe in segregating people who haven't been vaccinated. Yes, I'll use that term. I want you segregated from me. I don't want to be near you if you haven't been vaccinated. I have a right to know that you've chosen not to be vaccinated, and I have a right to make a decision whether I want to associate with you or be close to you or be within 10 feet of you. Uh, Because you made that choice. It's your choice. You made that decision. Again, I'll be repetitive. Jews didn't make the decision. You know that Catholic priests uh, were murdered in Auschwitz if their mother was Jewish. 
These are people who made the choice not to be Jewish. They converted. They accepted Jesus as their savior. They became Catholics. It didn't save them from the gas chambers because their mother or one grandparent had been Jewish. Do you think there's any comparison between being selected for death because one grandparent was Jewish and being selected for segregation by me and by others because you've foolishly, in my view, chosen not to be vaccinated. Even if it's not foolish, if you've made a wise decision not to be vaccinated, I'm entitled to make a wise decision not to expose myself to the possibility of being endangered by your contagion. So how do you get around the difference between one is voluntary and one is contagious? Those are good reasons for segregation. The Bible sets out that if you have leprosy, and leprosy is not something you've chosen to do, it's something you've caught. If you have leprosy, you have to be segregated. You have to be taken from the village and put outside the village until your leprosy is no longer contagious. Every society in history has segregated contagious people. And uh, what we're saying, and I strongly support it, is if you exercise your right, if you have such a right, and we can discuss that on other shows, we have already discussed that on other shows, if you have the right not to be vaccinated, fine, exercise that right, but don't expect me to be the victim of your choice. You've chosen, you've made an intellectual choice, an emotional choice, perhaps a political choice, perhaps a religious choice, but you've made a choice not to be vaccinated. I've made a choice not to be exposed to your contagion. That's a rational choice. And so, yes, if you choose not to be vaccinated, you can be subject to some degree of segregation. I would never dream of not allowing somebody in my house based on race or religion or ethnicity or anything else, uh, because that's not a choice. Uh, but I will uh, maintain the right to keep a person who hasn't been vaccinated from my house, my restaurant, my airplane, my law office, uh, you name it, my classroom. Um, I would not teach students who were not vaccinated or who were not um, uh, immune in some other way. I won't expose my other students to your refusal to be vaccinated, but we can get into debates about that. <clears throat> but you cannot analogize a decision not to be vaccinated to a non-decision to be born a Jew or to be born a member of some other group that is subject to discrimination, whether it be black in America during the slave period, whether it be part of the Romani uh, groups during the Nazi period. Um, we can argue about homosexuality whether it's a choice or whether it's uh, uh, something that you're predisposed to. Reasonable people are on all sides of, of that I issue. Um, the Catholic Church takes the position that uh, it may not be a choice whether to be gay, but it is a choice to engage in gay conduct. We can have those debates. That's a very different kind of debate. No one denies that it is a choice to be vaccinated if you have the right not to be vaccinated. If you exercise that choice, there are consequences. Choices should have consequences. 
how you're born should not have consequences. And if you don't understand that difference, then I'd like to hear from you, and I'd like to hear you justify treating choice the same as treating what you're born as a Jew or black or Asian or anything else. When we think of the detention centers in the United States in the 1940s, when under Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Earl Warren and Hugo Black, all the liberals, we can find over 100,000 Americans in detention centers solely because of their race, because they had been born into Japanese-American families. That kind of segregation is always wrong. But if somebody chose, for example, to support the Nazis, chose to support the Japanese during the Second World War, yes, detention centers would be fine for them during wartime. There's an enormous difference. The difference is as clear and as valid and as philosophically sound as any distinction we can ever make. The difference between choosing to do something and being born into a status that cannot be changed. If you were born a Jew in Nazi Germany, you could become the Pope, and it wouldn't matter. You would be sent to Auschwitz because your grandfather or your grandmother was Jewish. That's not choice. So please, those of you who want to call and follow up on this, and I welcome your calls, focus on that difference. The difference between choosing not to be vaccinated and wearing a Star of David because your grandparent was Jewish. The burden is on you to justify that distinction on The Der Show. I will always take your calls, but I will not withhold my anger at what you're saying. And I've done that. I do it with respect. The reason I take your calls and I answer so emotionally is because I respect you. And I respect your right to express those opinions. I don't necessarily respect or agree with those decisions. And you would expect nothing less from me than for me to honestly respond as I've done today on The Dirt Show. So please keep calling in no matter what your gripe is, no matter what your view is. Tell your friends, subscribe on Rumble, YouTube, whatever. And let's keep debating these issues. They're very important. I'm waiting for your calls on The Dirt Show. An important part of the Dirt Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short, and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.